there are life events that change the trajectory of our lives. For some of you, perhaps it was the day you got married, and since then, nothing has ever been the same. For others of you, perhaps it was a time in which you lost a loved one, a spouse, or a child, or a parent, or a friend. Perhaps still for others, it was the day your firstborn child was born and you held them in your hands, or the day you discovered you couldn't have children. Still for others, it might be external life events. Like many of you, you perhaps remember where you were on the day of 9-11, or for some of us even, how you were living your life during World War II or during the 2008 stock market crisis. All of these events, both within our personal family life and within our community, shape us. They change us. And as much as they do, what I want to talk about today and what the Apostle Paul is going to outline for us so well is that the same thing happens in our spiritual lives when we can finally get to the point where we have peace with God in the midst of the suffering that we face. And how having peace with God in the midst of our suffering truly changes us. And so that's what we're going to look at in just a moment. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to look for the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And while you're looking at that, I just want to take just a couple of minutes to bring our guests up to speed this morning. I want to outline for you where we've been over the course of the last four chapters leading up to today, and it can be outlined in these two ways. Number one, Paul has identified the problem. And what is the problem? that on account of our sin nature, we have all run from God. What we're going to learn today is all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and even though God stretches out his hand to us, we all turn away, we all flee from him. And on account of that, a great chasm has emerged between us and God. And there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. The spiritual condition of our heart is spiritual cancer. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. And so something had to be done, an antidote, a remedy. And then a couple weeks ago, we discovered that remedy when Paul said those two words, but now, and we found out that it wasn't a get-rich-quick scheme. It wasn't a fad or a gimmick or a trick. The solution was a person, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, totally perfect in every way, and he died a sinner's death so that we could all be set free, so that we could have new life in him. And what Paul wants to build on today is now that we know that, here's what happens. We still want to run from him. It's not that we were running from God just before he died on the cross, and now we're all gladly accepting him. It's that we're still running from him in many ways. Just last week, Paul identified the two main ways that this happens. The first is what I call the the moral response or the elder brother response. And here's what we do. We stay home, we comply, we follow all the right rules for all the wrong reasons, trying to prove to ourselves and to God, I can make it on my own. I can earn the golden ticket. I can earn my salvation. And in so doing, we spit on the cross of Christ. 
But the second way that we do this is what you might call the immoral response or the younger brother response where we we say, I want nothing to do with it. And we run further away from God in the midst of his begging and pleading, come back to me, see that I've paid the way through my son Jesus, come back. And we still run away. Or we come to a place like this, the community of faith, to a church, and we say there's no possible way that that Jesus could save me on account of everything that I've done. It's hopeless for me. And for both the moral response and the immoral response, they're doing exactly the same thing. They're just on opposite ends of the spectrum. What are they doing? They're saying to God, it's not about you, it's about me. And God looks at both and he says, don't you see? To the immoral person, he says, you can't out the cross. And to the moral person, he says, you can't save yourself. Both of you need to see that the only appropriate response is humility toward Jesus, falling down on your knees and saying, you are my salvation, my light, and my life. And then we get to a really difficult passage today. Paul wants, us to, wants to give us a gift Paul wants us to see that we can have incredible peace in this world in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the cruelty of life. So if you have your Bibles, look at it with me. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, and what's the therefore, therefore? In light of everything that we just reviewed together, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access, how? By faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also, hear this, glory in our sufferings. Interesting. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance creates character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, we have been, who has been given to us. And so let's just stop here for a moment. And I want us to review those three big words that we just covered together. The words perseverance, character, and hope. Because this is going to give us the the right path, the right trajectory to understanding how to have peace with God in the midst of our sufferings. So the first word that I put in your note sheet is perseverance. And here's the definition that I want to give to you today. Perseverance is choosing to endure in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of your failure, and in the midst of opposition. Uh, Julie and I, a a show that we enjoyed watching a couple years ago from the History Network was a show called The Selection. And it was uh, random folks, groups of people, who came to Navy SEAL and Green Beret training to see if they could cut it. And one of the things that always stuck out to me was a Navy SEAL event, uh, a type of training that the SEALs go through, and they call it log PT training. And it's where four or five individuals, they collectively pick up a 300-pound log. Now, you might think about that and say, well, if, there's, if it's 250 pounds and there's five of them, it's only 50 pounds each, uh, so surely that shouldn't be too hard. Until the commander says, Lift it over your head. 
Put it on your left side, lift it over your head, put it on your right side, lay down, do a sit-up, run up that bank, come back down the bank, hurry up, don't fall, put it over your head, put it back down, sprint, stop, drop, over and over and over again. Now here's the thing that was incredibly difficult for these people. They know that if they just let go, all the pain will go away. Their arms are screaming. Their whole body is in pain. They are sweating. They just want to give up. But the added social pressure is they know the moment they let go is the very moment that log gets heavier for everyone else. And so what perseverance is, is choosing to stay under the log. Choosing to persevere. Choosing to endure even though in so doing, they know that it's going to continue to bring on pain. They're going to have to continue to suffer and to suffer well. Well, this happens in a spiritual sense as well. The the Apostle Paul says, not only are you going to develop endurance and perseverance, but right on the heels of that, Paul says we're also going to develop character. What is character? I defined it this way. Character is to be tried, tested, and made new. Here's what we have to see. It's not just that you put on a new attribute. It's that you become a totally new person. Maybe this is a helpful example. You you take together two lumps of clay, and you begin to mold them and shape them, and you make something new, and then you thrust them in a 1,500-degree kiln, and once you take it out, that process can't be undone. You have been changed forever. And Paul says, on account of our suffering, on account of our perseverance, not only in physical perseverance do you gain greater strength and bigger muscles and a stronger heart, but in the spiritual sense, the same thing happens. You can be changed, made new, renewed, and you put on a new character. It builds you up. It strengthens you. And that's the the image that we have for this Greek word for character. And on account of that, here's the third thing that happens. We gain incredible confidence. And in Hebrew, the word for confidence is hope. And this is the definition that I give for hope. Certainty of what you cannot see and what has not yet come to pass. Do you remember the example that I gave you last week? The story of Abraham. God comes up to him. Abraham is 100 years old and God says, put your trust in me. You will have a son next year. And what does Abraham do? In the midst of not just the unlikelihood, but the absurdity that a 100-year-old man and his wife would have a child, Abraham says, I will put my trust in you beyond what my eyes can see. That's hope. He has this incredible confidence. It's not like our our modern definitions of hope. Hope oftentimes for us is wishful thinking, right? We say something like, I hope the weather is great when we go camping this weekend, or I hope we have pizza for dinner tonight, or I hope the Maple Leafs win a playoff series. That's wishful thinking. So we we know what, what hope is in the eyes of the world, right? We say, I wish this will happen. But what is hope in the eyes of Christ? Certainty of what has not yet come to pass. But we can still bring it to the bank 
even though we haven't seen it with our eyes just yet. Uh, An example that I've used uh, just a couple of months ago for those of you who are sport enthusiasts, I don't really like baseball, but I think it's a perfect example of this, is when the Chicago Cubs ended their 108-year drought on November 3, 2016. Hope is watching that game on reruns on November 4, 2016. Perhaps you had to work the day before. You didn't get to watch the game, but all your friends are telling you that finally the Cubs won. What a game it was. And so you go and you start watching the game on the fourth. Here's the thing. You don't know how it ends. I'm I'm sorry. You don't know how it happens, but you do know how it ends. And so when they're down in the middle of the seventh, or when they tie it up in the eighth, or when it goes into overtime, when there's a rain delay and you have to wait for a while and everyone's losing their minds... You're as cool as a cucumber because you know how the story ends. And even more so, that's what ought to shape us as a community of faith. We ought to have such incredible hope and confidence even in the midst of our suffering because Jesus has told us how the story ends. And because we know that, we should be able to look around the world, have conversations with our unchurched and unbelieving friends, see how they're losing their minds and how they're fretting in the midst of either COVID-19 or a financial crisis or in the midst of a broken marriage, or in the midst of a broken life, or in the midst of a recent diagnosis, all these things could be crumbling all around them. Perhaps even in your life, and they look at you and they say, why aren't you losing your mind like I am? You say, because I know how the story ends. Because I have incredible hope. Because I know who's in control, and who's in charge. And because I know that, it changes everything. You see, this is the reason why I believe the church ought to be the world leaders when it comes to hope. Because we know something that they don't know. And if we didn't know that, then it's perfectly rational for us to also be losing our minds. But as Christians, it ought not be. I love what Scripture says in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. It says, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love how it ends, eager to do what is good. It doesn't mean we have this kind of stoic idea that, oh, you know, I, I wish God will show up again, or maybe he'll show up one day, you know, if we're lucky. We know it with absolute certainty. We know that he was going to come back, and because he's coming back, it changes the trajectory of our lives. In the book of James, something similar. It talks about the connection between suffering and hope. It says, let suffering have its perfect work in us. Think about that. Let suffering have its perfect work in us. James is saying, bring it on. It's not as though we are excited about the suffering that we face. We just know that on account of our sin nature... And on account of the brokenness of the world, we're not surprised by suffering. And even as it comes, we have a proper perspective to process said suffering. You know, having peace with God means knowing that God is always going to work with our best intentions in mind, even when we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. Today's Father's Day, and maybe for those of you who are parents or have ever guided children, perhaps you've had these moments daily when you do something that's in your children's best interest, but they don't understand. 
and they get angry. Like for me, I, I have four children, ages seven and under, and so that's the phase of life that I'm in right now. Liam watches an hour of television, I turn off the TV, he loses his mind, and I say it's for your best interest. Or I have my son Noah, and he turns on the burner, just to use a hypothetical example. He's about to put his hand down on it, I slap it away. He starts to cry, he doesn't understand why. I'm doing it because I love him, but all he sees is a father who just slapped his hand. Or, another hypothetical example, uh, my daughter Jaina, she gets up at 5.30 in the morning, she takes a chair, she puts it next to the cupboard, she walks up, she grabs a bag of chips, she eats half the bag, chips are all over herself, all over everywhere else. I approach her, I say, did you eat the chips? She says, no. I say, are you lying? She doesn't know what to say, and she gets a gentle reprimand, and she starts to cry, hypothetically. Or, uh, my little daughter Kate, she takes a blue Expo marker, and she loves to draw, and she draws all over the walls in our basement downstairs, and all over our furniture, and everywhere outside, and on our siding. Again, to use a hypothetical example. Every day, we do things in the best interest of our children, but they might not understand why we respond the way that we do. Now let me ask you something. Even though you might be smart people, your intellectual capacity in comparison to your children is far closer than God's intellectual capacity in comparison to you. And because that's the case, could it be that God is doing something that you don't yet understand that has your best intentions in mind, but like a young child, you're crying out, why? Why, God, would you allow something like this to happen? And he's saying, I have your best intention in mind. Know the character of your loving Heavenly Father, even in the midst of your suffering, because there's something that I am doing that is for my glory and for your good, and you can bring that to the bank. Now, here's what I want us to see in the second half. Take a look with me at verse 6. Paul continues, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Circle, highlight, underline. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, for the remainder of our time, I want us to take a deep dive into how it is that we can have peace with God in the midst of our suffering. I want to outline what that looks like and what the path looks like. And then right after that, I want to get really practical with you on how we can have peace with God in the midst of our suffering. So that's where I want to go for the remainder of our time. And I know that a lot of us, we might be asking questions like, does God want us to suffer? It almost seems cruel. It almost seems inhumane that God would put us in a position 
in which we would have such harmful and gratuitous suffering, and we say, why? Why would you let something like this happen? It can't be that a loving God would allow me to face such adversity, like the loss of a loved one who's gone too soon. Well, how could that be, God? You know, maybe at the ripe old age of 100 plus, when, you know, we just recognize that death is death. But really, when, when you have those gut-wrenching experiences where you can't understand why something like that would happen, how do we have peace with God in the midst of those moments? So let's walk through this together. The first one is how having peace with God changes everything. And it always, always starts with this first point that I put in your note sheet. It starts with a new identity. A new identity. An understanding that I am no longer an enemy of God. The Apostle Paul just said, while we were yet sinners, we had run from God. We were an enemy of God. And he brings us back through his sacrifice and he credits it to our account. And on account of that, I have a new identity with God. John chapter 1, verse 13, this is what it says. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, in Scripture, more than anything else, the term that we see for God is Abba. It's a really interesting term because in that time in the first century, that was often the first word uttered from children to their daddies. Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, Papa, Papa. And that's the language that Jesus uses and tells us to use for our Heavenly Father, the creator of the universe. We go from enemies of God to children of the King. And right on the heels of that, we also are given a new destiny. A new destiny. It's not just that we're going to one day live in heaven forever, as beautiful as that is. It means that because we are part of the family business, it's because we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, we have a part to play in his kingdom expansion process right now. And as we walk with our Heavenly Father in step with him, we begin to look like him, to emulate him, to model him. And then your friends start saying, there's something different about you. You're starting to act and talk and look differently. What's going on? And you know why it is. Because as you walk with Christ, you begin to put on the fruit of the Spirit. You begin to be more loving, to have greater joy and peace and patience. You're incredibly kind and generous. Your self-control is out of this world. Not because of you, but because of the Holy Spirit that is giving you a new life. And then number three, on the heels of that, you begin to get a new view on suffering. Look again your Bibles. Verse three, it says, therefore, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Um, by a show of hands, how many of you use Romans chapter five, verse three as your life verse? Oh, no one. Uh, how many of you have Romans five, three on the back of your car on a bumper sticker? Any of you have it like on a mug in your house or maybe up on your wall somewhere? No, no, we, we usually don't do that. Why is that the case? Because if we're honest with ourselves, maybe, just maybe, it's one of those verses we, we don't quite wish was in the Bible. We rejoice in our sufferings? Really? I don't want to rejoice in my sufferings. I want my sufferings to go away. That's what I want. 
And yet Paul says that that's what we're called to do, to rejoice in them. See, not one of those verses we tend to, to throw around too much, but Paul, he gives us a new perspective on this. And as we look at the character of God, like I've shared with you already, we need to recognize, is God sovereign? Yes. Is he in control? Yes. Is he all-powerful? Yes. But never should we have this idea in thinking that God intentionally causes us harm. That he intentionally tries to inflict evil or suffering upon us. This is what Psalm 92 says. Psalm 92 says, The Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no wickedness in him. He can do no evil. And so, the promise is this. If you are sons and daughters of the Most High God, your suffering will not be wasted. Even though we don't want suffering to occur, it will occur, but it will not be wasted. If you have uh, your Bible with me, I want to encourage you to put a tab in Romans chapter 5 and to turn with me into 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's just probably 20 pages to the right. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16. The Apostle Paul is going to outline for us what our perspective ought to be in suffering. And it's just so interesting because we all know now, if you were with me a few weeks ago, that Paul is writing the book of Romans in Corinth, and this is his letter to the church in Corinth at that time. So here's what he's saying. Verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and momentary and temporary troubles. It seems like Paul is just kind of passing by suffering, a little too nonchalantly. But let's just remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul is very quick to put his money where his mouth is. Look a little bit further with me to chapter 11, verse 23. Paul wants to give an account of his ministry and the suffering that he has endured. Verse 23 says this, Are we servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received the Jew, from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes was a death sentence. Three times I was beaten with rods, Once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked, and I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers." I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. This is what Paul calls light, temporary afflictions. How can he say that? In the midst of everything that he has experienced... I wouldn't call those light temporary afflictions. I'd call that a pretty bad life. And yet Paul has the eyes to see something that many of us still cannot see. That if we have the sure and certain hope of God, 
knowing how the story ends, in the scope of eternity, that's exactly what they are. They're a moment that passes by. And he had the eyes to see that. So you might say, okay, Justin, I I might understand this conceptually. I might even understand it theologically. But how does this work out in my life when, when it feels like all hell is breaking loose? How do I put this into practice? How do I begin to emulate this model of rejoicing in the midst of my suffering? How do I do that? Let me give you four things. The first thing, when it feels like all hell is breaking loose in your life, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. The promise of God is not that as Christians, we will be freed from suffering. In fact, the very opposite is true. Countless times in Scripture, what we hear is that suffering is part and parcel with the Christian faith. Let me just give you a couple examples of this. John chapter 16, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Not maybe, will be. If you are walking part and parcel with Christ, that's the way that's going to be. 1 Peter 4, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you as to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. See, I think sometimes we've convinced ourselves that if we walk with Jesus, our life ought to get easier But what Jesus and Paul and the rest of the apostles and the authors of Scripture have outlined for us time and time again is when we walk with Christ in obedience, when we try to live our lives in such a way that we serve as a light to the world, the darkness will try to overcome it. And life will be very hard and harsh, even as you try to share the good news. And so we shouldn't be surprised from it. Number two, when these things are happening in our life, we should rejoice in our suffering, not necessarily for it. I think that's a really important distinction to make. It's not as though we become stoic robots in the midst of our suffering and we say, well, I'm not supposed to suffer. Or, I'm not supposed to be sad in the midst of our suffering. Of course we are. It's what it means to be human. In the midst of the loss of life, in the midst of death, in the midst of tragedy and suffering, the only appropriate response is to cry out to God. The only appropriate response is to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Make all things new. Of course we suffer in our sufferings. But it means when we have a proper perspective on the way that things are going to end, then we can still rejoice in them, knowing the final score. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, It is God's will that you give thanks in every circumstance. In every circumstance. And many of you know my story And one thing that I find myself thinking about today is a moment in my life when when I was walking through this. 
and it was on September 11th, 2013. The scariest day of my life. It was the day my firstborn son, Liam, was born. Leading up to that day, I was having many great conversations with my father, who many of you know struggled with drugs and alcohol abuse. But leading up to that time, I was really excited because I felt like God was doing a good work in his heart and in our relationship. It was like we were trying to make up for lost time. I finally gave him permission to play the part of the father, and he was giving me permission to play the part of the son. And he was so excited for me to have a child. September 11th came, and by God's grace, Julie's life was spared, even though the delivery was very dangerous. And I was able to hold my firstborn son, Liam, in my hands. And once Julie was stable, the very first call that I made was to my dad. And he was so elated. He was so overjoyed that I had a son of my own. And as we talked there, we were making plans for him to come and visit and how he was going to play with my son's ears and scruffle his soft skin with his beard and to teach him how to burp and fart and do all those things grandparents do. But little did I know at the time that was the last conversation I had with my dad. And in the coming days, I was angry with God. I was angry with him because of the, incre- in the, the cruel timing of it all. It seemed almost impeccable. We found out later that I, I sent a picture of my son to my dad, and it was unviewed because he died before he witnessed or seen that picture. And I cried out to God, and I said, why? It, it almost would have been easier if he died a, a few months earlier or after he had seen my son just that one time? Why the impeccably cruel timing? But then I began to think about the finality of death for many who don't know Jesus and how it truly is the end. And nothing can be changed. And what our perspective is as Christians when we think about death. We recognize that in everything that we've experienced in this world, though you may have trouble, take heart, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. And in glory, what will he do? He will work backwards and he will redeem all of the suffering that we will ever face. And so again, it doesn't mean we become stoic robots. Nor does it mean that we have this kind of fake happiness that overlooks suffering and death. It means that in the midst of travesty and tragedy, we truly mourn because it's the only appropriate response to have. But we still mourn unwaveringly. Like that rock on the beach that continues to feel the waves crashing over it, but it continues to not move. That's the way that we are as Christians because we know how the story ends. We know what Christ is doing. And so it had me at that time thinking about question and answer 27 in Heidelberg Catechism. What do you understand by the providence of God? The answer 
God's providence is this, his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come not to us by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And so we rejoice in our sufferings, not for them, but we still can in them. And to that, our third point is this, let it shape you, but don't let it define you. Many of you who are here today, and perhaps many of you who are watching through this screen, you have had your fair share of torment and pain, perhaps far more than I've ever experienced in my life. And you know what suffering can do. You know the effect that suffering can have on your life. Oftentimes, it can do one of two things. Suffering can make us better, or it can make us bitter. Can't it? I often hear the saying, goes it like this, hurt people, hurt people. And maybe, just maybe, you yourself or someone you know fits that description. On account of the suffering in your life, it has totally unraveled you. And yet Paul says, I want you to have the eyes to see. I want you to have the holistic perspective in mind that even in the midst of what you're facing right now, as difficult as it may be, that God comes down into the valley with you, he mourns with you, and there will come a day in which he will wipe away every tear from every eye and he will make all things new. That's the perspective that we have as Christians in the midst of the adversity that we face. We can still hate death. We can totally hate death but we also know that it doesn't get the final word. Death doesn't get the final word. And that should give us joy. It should give us peace. And that leads to the fourth point. Remember, you know the final score. You know how the story ends. And because that's true, you can look at death in the face like Paul has. And he can say, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. We have new life in him. We have renewed enthusiasm and joy in the midst of the suffering that we face because we know the final score. Listen again to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. These incredible words, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And because of that, we rejoice in the midst of our suffering. We have peace in the midst of our suffering because he will make all things new. Let me pray for you. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. We ask, Lord, that we would see that in a new way this morning. I pray for the men and women and youth and children who are watching this today, who feel the painful effects of sin and death in their life. Even on a day like Father's Day where some of us, Lord, you know we're going to go home and we're going to hug our dad and we're going to be so grateful. For others of us, it may be a day of pain and heartache. Or it may be a day of being reminded that we have an imperfect example of a human father in comparison to our heavenly father. But wherever we find ourselves today, Lord, we ask that we would find incredible peace and comfort in you. That you would give us what we need. And that we would have hope. That the world would look at us and say, it seems so odd, it seems so strange. How can they be so cool, so calm, in the midst of this very dark place? And may that be the opportunity, Lord, for us to introduce them to Jesus so that they can have hope too. Allow us to do our part, Lord. Work in us. Mold and fashion and shape us to be more the image of Jesus and less the image of ourselves. We thank you in advance for your Holy Spirit who has been promised to us to complete the good work that you have begun in us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen.